calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Every five minutes, someone dies while waiting for a compatible donor heart, liver, or kidney. On a remote island in Lake Superior, a team of geneticists strive to engineer an animal with human-compatible organs, thereby saving millions of lives. But these ancestors are not the docile herd animals they envision. Instead, the project spawns something big, something evil, something hungry. Ancestor by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler is available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Leviathan Chronicles. An audio adventure. The story thus far. A dark shadow has fallen over the rebellion. After being rescued in Alaska, McAllen and Tully remained in India after being briefed by Sedgwick as to the origins of immortality on Earth. He tells them the story of Evangeline Liefrick and how she befriended two injured aliens from the planet Sorax 1,000 years ago, who used their advanced technology to alter Evangeline's DNA and grant her the powers of an immortal. But while McAllen and Tully believed they had found refuge in Mumbai under the protection of Sedgwick and the Rebellion, a brutal attack was launched by the Black Door Group against them. Jason Sterling and deranged scientist Dr. Peter Marcane created mutated superbeings by combining nuclear and starstone radiation contained within the lost US Navy submarine Dakota. These beings, these enforcers, stood almost 12 feet tall and possessed supernatural strength. Jason Sterling was able to link his mind to theirs and control them like robotic soldiers. But McAllen and Tully were able to blind the Enforcers for long enough for the Rebellion to launch a counter-strike to destroy them. The Enforcers' death was vicious enough that it caused a feedback signal to shoot directly to Jason Sterling, thus disfiguring and maiming him. But the victory was not without cost. The Rebellion's secret base in Mumbai has been discovered and must now be dismantled. Tully is growing despondent over the lack of progress in finding his best friend Oberlin St. Clair, and both McAllen and Tully were badly injured in the Enforcer attack. Worst of all, the brave Othello was killed while trying to save McAllen from one of the Enforcers. But a glimmer of hope remains for the Rebellion. A tooth filling from when the Enforcers were still human was discovered in the remains. Curiously, the filling is constructed of an advanced obsidian ceramic alloy. The only place that someone could produce the alloy other than an immortal is at Nankatsu Industries in Japan. And now, Chapter 12, The Devil You Know.
At the bottom of the Marianas Trench, at over 35,000 feet under the ocean, a small clear glow protruded halfway out of the side of the canyon wall and glowed with soft yellow light. Inside the small globe, a tall woman with auburn hair stood motionless, peering outward. A slightly shorter man covered in a white robe and white hood that obscured his face approached silently behind her. You know you shouldn't have the signal shield open. I'll take the risk. I'm sure you will, but you could also be allowing the rogue Starstone signal to enter the confines of Leviathan and kill us all. Is that a risk you would take as well? There's something I want to see. And what would that be? We're 35,000 feet underwater in the darkest and most remote place on Earth. I'm afraid there's nothing to see, Evangeline. Then I want to see the emptiness. Ah, that would be the two chief engineers that have recalibrated the signal shield. They said you asked them for a status report. Send them in. A middle-aged man and woman entered the room wearing Kelly green overalls and carrying equipment satchels. They approached Evangeline reverently. However, upon glancing at the man in the white hood, the two stepped slightly away from him. The man in overalls spoke first. My lady, we've just replaced the used Daxonite with the fresh rods from our storage supply. Good. Have you recalibrated your readings? Yes, ma'am. Since we've installed the new rods, the Daxonite has absorbed all of the ambient radiation from the rogue Starstone. I can't find any detection of its damaging signal within the confines of Leviathan City. We're safe for now, ma'am. For now? Uh, yes, Viceroy. This recent installation represents the last of our Daxonite supplies. How has your research progressed? Regrettably, I have no good news to report. Based on our findings, Daxonite seems to be the only substance on Earth capable of absorbing a Starstone signal. When these new Daxonite rods are exhausted, we will be defenseless and open to the deadly effects of the malfunctioning Starstone. We will find another supply. Perhaps we could manufacture another supply of Daxonite. We've used the power of our Starstones to produce astonishing materials, strong enough to withstand the pressure even here at the bottom of the... Perhaps you forget, Bennu. The reason we are in this predicament is because the power supply in our existing Starstones is almost depleted. We requested another Starstone from Sorax. That is the one that is currently malfunctioning. Of course, my lady. Forgive me. Ma'am, some of the other citizens, well, friends of mine, are worried. We've been isolated here in Leviathan for quite some time. We love our work, and we revere the Eden Initiative, but this incident with the Starstone malfunction has us worried. Of course it does. And steps are already being taken to correct the situation. Be assured of that. Your work is very important to Leviathan, and you can't let yourself be distracted from the tasks at hand. I need you to continue to monitor the Daxonite and make sure that no radiation from the outside is allowed to penetrate in the confines of Leviathan. This place is our haven, our safety from the rest of the world, and it will remain so, I promise you. The woman smiled and seemed to take comfort from Evangeline's assurances. She and her counterpart turned and left the room. Promising a bit more than we can deliver, aren't we? These walls have protected us for a thousand years. We have nothing to fear. The Chinese must have had some sort of accident that occurred in their handling of the Starstone. They must have... Unless, of course, the Starstone malfunction was not an accident. Oh, come now. This is the first Starstone malfunction in over a thousand years. If the possibility of intentionally manipulating a Starstone existed, I think we would have known about it by now. I hardly believe it could be used as a weapon. I merely suggest that we examine all the possibilities. I think you're paranoid. Still, something very dangerous is lying out there in the darkness. Something our enemies are controlling. Which ones? Fair point. 
But even you must admit that there could be some advantages to the crisis we face. As always, your wisdom is lost on me. Please enlighten me as to what benefits have been manifested by our existence being threatened. The gift of information, of course. We'll see what Sinshin has up his sleeve. I have a feeling his hand will be forced before ours. Back in Mumbai, spirits were low in the rebel base. People rushed about hurriedly, dismantling equipment and carrying boxes out of the base. Tully had been given proper quarters where he could shower and finally change out of the fuzzy pink sweater that McCallan had given him days ago. Despite the frenzy in the compound, nobody had seen Anton leave his room for 48 hours. He was devastated by the loss of his best friend, Othello, and had sequestered himself from all other distractions. McCallan too stood in Sedgwick's private quarters watching him cook. It helps with the immortality, you know, the cooking. It provides a ritual which gives meaning to the passing of time. How long did you know him? Othello? About 200 years. He was one of the first to join us. To join the rebellion that Senjun started. I'll admit, I had my doubts at first. It seems hard to believe, but Evangeline is powerfully charismatic and very compelling in her logic. She firmly believes that the Eden Initiative is the path to salvation for mankind, and that, as immortals, it was our destiny to save humanity. I was pursuing chemistry at the time, and was surrounded by the best minds on the planet. We wanted for nothing. Back then, I thought that Leviathan would be the most pleasant place to spend eternity. But, as always, things change. And soon more and more of my research was being directed towards creating concoctions to be used for truth serums and untraceable poisons. Evangeline started using a small military strike force to influence events on the surface. Many in the Leviathan community knew that Evangeline was using some of the power that came with immortality for less than honorable means. But for many, they had been away from mankind so long that mortality governing their affairs seemed distant. I remember Othello telling me that being immortal was dangerous, that we would cling too closely to the idea of living forever, that the fear of dying would consume us, so that our lives would become solely the pursuit of preserving our precious lifespan. I'm worried about Anton. No one's seen him for days. He's just holed up in his room. You would be too if you lost your brother. Brother? Well, of sorts. It all began in 1854 during the beginning of the Crimean War. Anton's father, Lord Becquerel, had been dispatched to serve as a lieutenant major under the Earl of Cardigan. He met with the village chief, Eskabar Andronovich, to convince him to use his connections with the Russian army to spy and relay information. Lord Becquerel gave Eskabar medical supplies and easily tradable goods so that they would not have to rely on the opium trade. Eskabar proved an adept spy and lived the dangerous life of a double agent for over two years. But the Russians soon grew suspicious. The Tsar unleashed his dreaded Black Mongol regiment of barbarians upon Escobar's village. The only survivor was Escobar's youngest son, Othello. Lord Becquerel took the orphaned Othello with him when he returned to England and raised him as his own son. Soon his bride bore him his own son, that he named Anton. 
He raised Anton and Othello as brothers, and they looked after each other their entire lives. They were as close as true brothers could ever hope to be. I can feel that part of Anton's soul has died. Othello used to say that immortality only gave us the illusion of permanence. They knew each other and were family for over 150 years. It's hard for me to get my head around that. I mean, I've had some friendships from high school that are 15 years old. And I've known you and Anna for 30 years, but 150 years. I can't imagine how painful this must be for you and Anton. I hope you will never have to feel it, McCallan. That is why it is so important that we win this war and you fulfill your destiny to reset the Star Stone. I love you, Sedgwick. I love you too, McCallan. And although I am not your father, I have always thought of you as my daughter, a daughter of whom I could not be more proud. Sedgwick, about my father, how did he- Attention team, this is Sension. Please assemble in the conference room right away. Come. I'm anxious to see what Senshun has been able to find. McAllen and Sedgwick walked down a corridor where they met Anton. His face was pale and wet, and he looked weak on his feet. Anton, are you- I'm fine. McAllen, Anton, Sedgwick, and Tully shuffled into a conference room, where the far side of the wall was dominated by a large video monitor. Senshun stepped into view. Good morning. Let me start by saying how sorry I am that we couldn't save Othello. He was a soldier, a visionary, and a very good friend. He believed in our cause and he gave his life to defend it. Anton, I know how deeply this loss affects you. Anton said nothing and stared blankly ahead, stone-faced. But this war doesn't give us the luxury of a mourning period. Black Door sent those monsters to kill McAllen. We've learned that they have somehow obtained access to a star stone or at least something that behaves very much like it. We need to understand how that's possible and more importantly, what they intend to do with it. The only clue that we've managed to obtain is a tooth filling that we've tied to Nankatsu Industries, one of the most advanced techno-industrial conglomerates on Earth right now. Those monsters that killed Othello appear to have been human once, before they were mutated. My guess is that before their gene sequence was altered, they must have spent some period of time in one of Nankatsu's advanced materials laboratories, perhaps as employees or test subjects. Whatever work is being conducted there must link to the Black Door Group's activities and their attacks on the Immortals. Where exactly are these facilities? How do we know which one is linked to the Enforcers? <sighs> we don't. Nankatsu is headquartered in Tokyo, but they often utilize remote satellite branches for research and development. They usually choose locations that are governed by magistrates that are easily bought or intimidated. This allows them to conduct experiments that might be considered environmentally or morally unsound. Very little is known about the exact operations conducted within these facilities. Their security and precautions have been among the most advanced that we've seen from any government, military, or otherwise. However, we do know the locations of three of the secret laboratories that Nankatsu operates for their research and advanced materials. One is in Chimbote, deep in the Peruvian side of the Amazon rainforest. The second is in the Gobi Desert, near Alunbatar. Now the last one might be our target. Nankatsu Industries has been running a skunk works lab on the remote island of Nishinoshima. It's a small island that lies a thousand kilometers south of mainland Japan. Its isolated location is perfectly suited for Nankatsu's need for secrecy. But the other laboratories sound pretty remote as well. I mean, why Nishimoshima over the other laboratories? The tooth filling we found was comprised of an unusual composite containing obsidian. If manipulated at the atomic level, it can act as a very powerful bonding agent for other harder minerals, thus creating an alloy that is virtually impenetrable. Well, the total is worth more than the sum of its parts. Precisely. 
Obsidian is a rare substance and typically only found in areas of geological instability, like fault lines. Nishinoshima lies in an isolated chain of volcanic islands near Japan. We need to launch an infiltration mission. If we can get inside the laboratory, we could access their mainframe and search the databanks to determine what Black Door is doing. If they have any connection to this deadly signal that's been killing our people, we have to make them pay. I share your anger, Anton. But revenge is an indulgence we cannot allow ourselves. I do agree that we should launch a strike team to infiltrate their labs. This could be the best lead we have received yet. Oberlin mentioned that one of the guys shooting at us back in Homer was speaking Japanese. Maybe these guys have information on where they're holding Oberlin. If he's still alive. He is alive. Gentlemen, we're all on the same team, but I think we're ignoring the obvious. Infiltrating Nankatsu Industries won't be as simple as knocking over a liquor store. We're talking about one of the most sophisticated technology companies on the planet, and this is one of their most secure facilities. Their defenses will be considerable. Our technology is superior to say nothing of our training. But look at where we are. The Daravi facility you're sitting in is no longer operational. Our computer systems are down. We can't provide tactical support for a mission of this complexity. And Sutton Manor isn't set up to administrate a covert strike either. Then we'll need to outsource the assistance we require. We'll need someone who has experience in infiltration and can extract a protected target. Someone for whom breaking and entering are not- No! I won't do it, Senshin! I won't work with him! When Othello died, I became Chief of Tactical Operations. This is my call, and I'm telling you that he isn't capable or trustworthy, and will betray us to Evangeline and the Eden as if the right price is offered to him. I won't. I think you're letting your emotions get in the way. A mercenary to the highest bidder he is, but even you must give respect to his capabilities. He's proven himself to be an asset to our rebellion on many occasions where And he's we... been an enemy too! He switches sides whenever the mood or price strikes his fancy. He was back on Evangeline's payroll in the early 1900s. He has no loyalty or honor. Can somebody please tell me who the hell we're talking about? A very dangerous immortal. He's a mercenary, a hacker, a traitor, a cat burglar, an assassin, a spy as well as a thief. He is a man with many skills that offers his services to the highest bidder. Unfortunately, he does have a reputation for often playing both sides of a conflict when it serves his purposes. Does this elusive man of mystery have a name? Of course he does. Harlequin. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Three days later, after intense planning, McKellen, Tully and Anton left Mumbai for London to meet the infamous Harlequin. Anton seemed slightly more animated now that a mission was at hand, but he was quick to anger when McAllen again insisted that Tully join them in London. 
Anton relented after grumbling that Tully had been privy to too much classified information already to be allowed to go free. A chauffeured black and silver Maybach 62S pulled up to the curb at Gatwick Airport to meet McAllen, Tully and Anton. The two men bumped into each other while they each reached to open the door for McAllen. <laughs> Thanks, boys. But I'm a big girl, and I can open my own doors. But when she pulled on the handle, she noticed the door felt much heavier and opened much slower than she expected. Must be an armored limousine. Are we really in that much danger? Is this the life of an immortal? Always protected, always hiding. Once inside, the rich Connolly leather seemed to envelop her when she sat in one of the large bench seats that faced each other. Two LCD screens displayed BBC News and CNBC, while a third offered internet access. Anton climbed inside next, followed by Tully. A chilled bottle of Cru Grand Cuvée Brut Champagne sat in a burled wood container within one of the armrests. McCallum was tempted to indulge in a glass, but ultimately dissuaded herself when she remembered that it was nine in the morning here in London and that someone was trying to kill her. I still don't understand. Who exactly is this Harlequin? Harlequin is the only immortal in existence to have broken free of Evangeline's grip and not align himself with our rebellion. He operates as an independent mercenary, offering his prodigious services to the highest bidder, no matter whom that might be. He defiantly broke away from Leviathan several centuries ago to indulge himself in a more hedonistic lifestyle. Evangeline tried to have him killed, and when she failed, she promptly spread rumors that he had died of natural causes. But, eventually news filtered down from the surface that not only was he still alive, but thriving, using his wealth to obtain tools and training to provide a myriad of dark services to whomever could afford him. His professional record is littered with assassinations, spy work, sabotage, and of course, high-level theft. He's incredibly rich, even by immortal standards, and has developed quite a penchant for the finer things in life. He's adapted remarkably well to modern times, and now specializes in stealing information through hacking computer systems and invasive surveillance. Last I'd heard, he'd been indulging himself in cat burglary and art theft out of boredom between assignments. So, I don't get it. Is he part of the Rebellion or one of the Edeners? Neither. He's provided services for both sides in the past. And as loath as I am to admit it, he has been a valuable resource in our journey for independence. Of course, he's also been a liability as well and has reported sensitive information about our operation to Evangeline. He plays us both against each other, and we all know it. And then how does he survive? If he's broken free of Evangeline, then how does he get his reinfusion of Starstone energy to perpetuate his immortality? By threatening to leak information that she has entrusted to him against her. He does a great deal of work for the Edeners as well as us. Having such a capable agent on the surface while Evangeline and the rest of the Edeners lie hidden from the world within Leviathan can have its advantages. He's more used to her alive than dead, and Harlequin knows that. Wait a second. Isn't that what your rebellion is all about? This guy has the answers. Don't you guys want to be free from Evangeline too? Maybe you should- Not for the price he was willing to pay. Look, it seems we've almost arrived. The Maybach pulled up to the Sanderson Hotel on Berners Street in Soho, and several doormen hurried to unload the baggage in the trunk. I have some business to attend to this afternoon, so I'll have the car pick you up at 7.30 this evening. I suggest you use the time to get some rest and get yourselves properly ready for this evening. If suspicions are correct, we'll be meeting Harlequin this evening at the Tate Modern Annual Breast Cancer Benefit. The dress is black tie. In case you're unaware, Mr. Tully, that requires you wear a tuxedo with a white shirt that tucks into your trousers? Piss off. I've worn a tux before. He lied. And McAllen, after you've had a chance to freshen up, have the hotel car take you to Bond Street in Knightsbridge. Why? You'll need to buy a dress, of course. The 
The plan was to intercept Harlequin at the annual breast cancer benefit at the Tate Modern, one of London's poshest museums. All of the luminaries in British film and society would be in attendance. And given Harlequin's predilection for the finer things in life, Anton was betting that he would be there as well. Giant floodlights illuminated the sides of the enormous building, while dancing high beams were reflected off the cloudy sky above. Once the Maybach crossed Blackfriars Bridge, traffic came to a halt as the endless procession of other limousines continued as they discharged their privileged passengers into this exhibition of celebrity and wealth. Once they had finally approached the entrance to the gala, McAllen swung one leg outside the limousine and felt her Stella McCartney dress slide dangerously up her thigh. She could see the flashbulbs of the paparazzi exploding along the entranceway to the Cape Modern Museum, spilling onto the red carpet. The camera flashes were blinding, but before she knew it, Anton was standing next to her, holding her arm gently. He looked dashing, and standing next to him, she realized for the first time how tall he was. He must be at least 6'4". Must be some sort of immortal trait. Total hottie in that tux. Speaking of tux, I wonder where... Tully adjusted the cuffs on his newly purchased Xenia tuxedo, which McAllen had generously purchased for him earlier in the day. Excuse me, would you please... Yes, I have a ticket. I said I'm with them. Just let me through. Get your man paws off me, Sasquatch. He was about to take McAllen's right arm, but was thwarted by Anton grabbing it first. Tully stared back at Anton defiantly, and without taking his eyes off him, stepped around Anton and gently locked arms on McAllen's left side. I believe the lady deserves two men to escort her through the door. Wouldn't you agree, Anton? I guess that depends on your definition. And there McAllen stood, at the foot of the red carpet, with a hundred photographers eagerly snapping photos of the tall, slender woman with auburn hair, accompanied by two attractive men that stood by her side. She felt beautiful and better about herself than she had in weeks. She was immortal. The three walked down the red carpet and entered Turbine Hall, the main lobby within the Tate Modern. Tully kept blinking his eyes hard to get the burn of the flashbulbs to dissolve from them. The hall was packed with beautiful people. Women in alluring evening gowns clinked champagne flutes with men in tuxedos, while a DJ group spun the latest trance music from Amsterdam. Anton, there must be a thousand people here. Do you know what Harlequin looks like? How are you going to be able to find him? I can already sense him. The three of them walked over to the section highlighting the museum's latest acquisitions. A handsome young man with tousled black hair stood admiring a painting by Louise Bourgeois. You know why I'm here, Harlequin. This needn't be a long discussion. The man remained motionless. Only the women on his arm moved as if they were swaying to an unheard rhythm. And then, as if responding to a mental cue, the women quickly left his side and busied themselves by the bar. Of course I know why you're here. The question is how did you know where to find me? Oh, that wasn't too hard. Maybe I knew that you couldn't resist looking at a painting you stole from the Museum of Modern Art in New York 20 years ago. Or maybe I'm in the market to hire someone to perform a computer hack into a database containing the location of every immortal that is part of the rebellion against Evangeline and the Edeners, so that they can be assassinated in their sleep. Or maybe... As usual, I haven't the slightest idea what you're talking about. Well, it seems that lately jewel heists and stolen art haven't been holding your interest, have they, Harlequin? It's information that seems to be the focus of your pervy, isn't it? Tell me, is treachery more palatable from behind a keyboard than on the front line? The man called Harlequin finally turned to face Anton and then glanced at McKellen. Ah, Anton, charming till the last. And you brought a pet with you. How enchanting. I'm no one's pet, and I have a name. Of course you do. It's McKellen Orsell, isn't it? 
You are supposed to be our key, aren't you? The key that has been rumoured all around Leviathan. A key to unlock Starstone should Evangeline ever fall ill. This isn't one of your games, Quinn. It gives me no pleasure to say this, but we need your help. It's an infiltration and reconnaissance job. High security, heavy technology. One of the toughest we've ever seen. We both know that thievery, for lack of a more elegant term, is your speciality. In fact, you're the best in the world. This time the prize is information. We believe Blackdoor may have knowledge of the rogue Starstone that's been killing us. We have to break into this laboratory and find out everything they know about Starstone technology and Leviathan. Forgive me, Anton, but I really don't feel I have the inclination. He started to walk away, but Anton grabbed his arm. Harlequin, you don't seem to understand what's at stake. If you don't help us find it, you'll die too. Do you really think I care? Harlequin yanked his arm back from Anton's grip. I care. You may not, but I really do. I don't want to die. And I certainly don't want my friends to die. Your friends? Is that what you think they are? Friends? The Rebellion? My dear, they are merely using you to save their own lives and accomplish their own political goals. What have they ever done for you? Oh, let me guess. They gave you a large sum of money. Harlequin. A large sum of money seemingly from nowhere for doing nothing. Millions, I'm sure. Who was your generous patron, McCallum? Was it Senshun or perhaps Sedgwick? I hope you realize, my dear, that the giving of money comes as easy as breathing to an immortal. The one thing you learn during the course of eternity is that human loyalties are notoriously cheap. I'm no longer human. No. No, of course you're not. You're the messiah, aren't you? The youngest immortal on the planet. The rook to topple over Queen Evangeline, aren't you? Or is pawn the correct piece? I forget- I'm not a messiah. I'm just- Make no mistake. Greatness will be thrust upon you whether you wish it or not. And what about you, Anton? Do you want to die or is immortality treating you too nicely? You like the clothes, the cars and the mansions, that money- I see you like your own share of comforts. Yes. Hedonism does suit me rather well. I hear Senshin has you flying the condor now. Isn't that a nice piece of stolen loot? You guys stole the condor? Long story. And where is Senshin hiding these days? You know I won't tell you that. The mythical Sutton Manor? I won't tell you. Hidden somewhere in New York, I've come to understand. Have you felt the signal strike? Does your mind want to explode? I'll bet you have felt it, Harlequin. How much time do you imagine you have? Longer than you, Anton. Hey, guys. We're here to do a mission. Harlequin, we need you to help us find the broken Starstone. We believe the key to finding it is in a laboratory on a remote island off of Japan's coast. We need help infiltrating the facility. We've got to find the rogue Starstone. Of course you do, but you're not asking the right question. And what is that? Who lost the Starstone in the first place? Harlequin smiled coyly at McCallan and then stared back at Anton. The two sensual women that were by Harlequin's side earlier returned, bringing him a glass of his favorite Paul Roger champagne. He leisurely finished the glass, occasionally holding it up to the light, staring intently at it as if the decision of whether or not to aid the rebellion was contained within its bubbles. Ah. Frustrated, Anton knew this game, and he had to stand there submissively while Harlequin held the empty glass high above his head and allowed the last few drops to fall into his open mouth. Mm. I'll let you know tomorrow. In the meantime, please do be a good man and get lost. I intend to enjoy the remainder of my evening without the distraction of... solicitation. Anton stared back intently at Harlequin, about to challenge him, but then promptly turned on his heel and stormed out of the museum. Tully couldn't help but smile as they followed him out the door. <laughs>
What are you smiling about, Tali? If Harlequin doesn't help us, we're literally dead in the water. Are you kidding me? I love this guy. Him helping us is in the bag. Oh yeah? And what makes you so sure? Because our Harlequin likes pissing off Anton even more than I do. The next day, Tully, McCallan, and Anton awoke in their suites at the Sanderson and found invitations engraved by hand lying on their beds. The invitations read, The presence of your company will be kindly tolerated at the personal residence of the one and only Harlequin at high noon today. Please be on time. Fucking arsehole. High noon? <laughs> what a guy. The Maybach limousine dropped McCallan, Tully, and Anton off at an exquisite mansionette located in Hyde Park Gardens. Pretty sweet pad. One of his many cherished residences. Good afternoon. Mr. Harlequin is expecting you in the study. The three of them followed a portly butler through a marble foyer that housed a wide, winding staircase that led up over five stories. Harlequin's study was on the third floor. When they entered it, McCallan's eye was immediately drawn to the windows, which overlooked Hyde Park. But Anton had no patience for indulgent architecture and walked straight over to Harlequin, who was stationed behind a large, polished oak campaign desk with several computer monitors recessed into the room. What's your answer, Harlequin? Harlequin gestured towards the sofa by the window, but Anton firmly stood his ground. Please, Harlequin. We're trying to save lives. Not just our own, but others. My Nana. Amelia Orso. I'm sure you know her. If I can save her... Save lives? Are you sure you've allied yourself with the right cause, McCallan? Have you asked Anton how many lives they've saved versus how many they've killed? Have they told you This that? is no time for a subjective history lesson. Just yes or no. Tully spoke for the first time since entering the room with McCallan and Anton. Actually, I would like to hear about it, if that's okay. Ah, Mr. Tully, is it? I assume you're a companion of Miss Orsel. Anton wouldn't lower himself to associate with mere mortals. You see, Mr. Tully, the world began to change 70 years ago. Like little termites, mankind began to stick his fingers into even the most remote areas of the Earth. We immortals had enjoyed a reasonably separate existence from the rest of mankind for hundreds of years. Years that were well spent pursuing accomplishments of science you could only dream of. We are left alone peacefully to pursue our own visions of enlightenment without the constant interruptions of the politics of man and the endless squabbles over money or a few miles of precious land or whose god is a better god. It was a renaissance. But 70 years ago, the world started to become a smaller place. Information was being shared at a global level and the glorious fragmentation of man's society began to meld itself together so that communication was becoming more coordinated across the globe. The transfer of knowledge was becoming more seamless and world's borders began to quietly dissolve. We were, in short, running out of hiding places. That's what I don't understand. Why do you guys need to hide so badly? Because of the endless fascination and jealousy of mankind, nobody wants to die, Mr. Tully. And to have wealthy individuals among them that are exempt from the sacred rules of nature and death would inflame mankind to the point of our extermination, or worse, our examination. Today, progress is racing ahead exponentially. The human genome has been decoded. What if someone were able to unlock the secret that lay within the Leviathan genes? What would happen to the world? Think of it. The population stands at 6.6 .6 billion currently. Without death, that number would double with 50 years. And then even faster as man would never be able to resist the call of reproduction. 
Always room for just one more, as long as it's my child. The planet would be exhausted of resources in under 300 years. Which, I understand, may seem like a lot to you. But for my immortal brethren, it's just a long summer. So what exactly happened 70 years ago? Didn't you tell them, Anton? No, I suppose some chapters of history are better left buried, aren't they? You see, McAllen, for the better part of the last thousand years, Evangeline's dream of the Eden Initiative was being fulfilled. One of the first applications of the Starstone power that was gifted to her by her alien benefactors was the ability to create advanced materials that were stronger and lighter, possessing properties that mankind had never dreamed of. This has always been the core of our immortal technology. So Evangeline created a fortress, deep, so very deep under the ocean where no one on earth could find her. Well, her and her loyal subjects, the Edeners. We were all Edeners at one time, you see. Evangeline collected us like butterflies in a jar. The best painters, soldiers, the most brilliant engineers and scientists. She seduced us all with the promise of wealth and freedom and a community of like-minded geniuses. We would go to a place where our every desire would be met and every resource needed to advance our field of study would be procured. The ultimate patronage. And in fairness to Evangeline, she delivered what she promised. We were given extraordinary wealth to distribute to our friends and family, as well as pad our own accounts. Shortly thereafter, we were whisked away to this underwater fortress called Leviathan to conduct the greatest science the world has ever known. But as the centuries passed, the fortress became a community, a small city of several thousand. Of course, once you became a member of Leviathan, contact with the surface world became infrequent. All travel through the Keyhole Network was governed by Evangeline, and Leviathan citizens found their access to children and loved ones being increasingly restricted. Security was the reason most often given, and there was obviously some truth to that, as mankind became more sophisticated in its detection methods. Quite soon, it was not lost upon the inhabitants of Leviathan that fewer of the new members were scholars or artisans, but rather soldiers and assassins. Evangeline's relationship with mortal affairs on the surface became more caustic and her methods more severe. As political parties grew that were in opposition to her tenets of the Eden Initiative, Evangeline found it too cumbersome to deploy the usual methods of bribery and trade to affect her desires. Rather, she soon found herself resorting to murder and intimidation. Leviathan members were asked to work on projects that were blatantly nefarious. Our hidden tribe of pacifists were being asked to kill in order to preserve that peace. Then one day, an impetuous young immortal named Sension, maybe only 200 years old, explains to Evangeline that he no longer believes in the tenets of the Eden Initiative. He believes that the benefits of our incredible knowledge and advances in medicine should be shared with mankind, not hoarded away deep under the ocean. Evangeline insisted that her path was the only path, that science and enlightenment was allowed to continue to grow unfettered from the contamination that mankind's ambitious hunger radiated. She did not believe mankind to be ready to accept the gifts that she had spent her lifetime and the lifetime of the other Edeners accumulating. Mankind was still too primitive, too warlike. It wasn't ready for the pearls of immortal wisdom to be bestowed upon them. After lobbying Evangeline for decades to allow more freedom for the members of Leviathan to travel to the surface and to have more say in the government of Leviathan, Sension secretly recruited a few hundred of the Edeners to form a rebellion to overthrow Evangeline. 
without the ability to convert a star stone into the cellular energy needed to maintain our immortality. Evangeline would lose all of her power. So Senshin, along with other scientists within the rebellion, created a powerful retrovirus. One that was genetically engineered to deactivate Evangeline's genes and transform her back into a mere mortal. Of course, this would mean a death sentence for every immortal, but Senshin was always an extremist. Better to die free than live as a slave to Evangeline. Not that he gave anyone else much choice in the matter. But Evangeline, through her spies, learned of this plot and so she created a device. A transformative device that would reawaken her leviathan genes if they were forced into dormancy by Sentient's virus. This device was powered by a tiny bit of starstone energy that could have been detected by the Rebellion. So she hid the device within one of the keyholes that we use to travel through normal space to different points on Earth. She had this device constructed back on the surface so that nobody within Leviathan could find and destroy this new defense mechanism Evangeline had created for herself. When the device was completed, it was loaded onto a shipping vessel called the Cedar Elm. But the other secret was that a new substance had been discovered, called Daxonite, that was the only substance known that could block the powerful radiation of a starstone. And it just so happened that the Cedar Elm was carrying a large supply of Daxonite to trade with in Hawaii. Two days after heading out of Vancouver, Evangeline ordered the ship destroyed so that it, along with her precious safety device, lay safely at the bottom of the ocean surrounded by Daxonite to hide it. That's why the Cedar Realm shipwreck kept moving around. Evangeline must have been moving the shipwreck underwater so that nobody would ever find it. She couldn't remove the sarcophagus from the body of the shipwreck because the Starstone radiation would alert the Rebellion to its presence. Precisely. So the Cedar Elm lay at the bottom of the ocean like a safety deposit box waiting patiently for Evangeline to make her withdrawal. Unfortunately, the Cedar Elm's complements of 65 crew members were killed in its establishment. But as I'm sure you'll learn, McAllen, a human life is a small price to pay in the pursuit of an immortal's agenda. Isn't that right, Anton? You have no right Getting to- back to our story. Senshun and his merry band of rebels released their toxic retrovirus. But of course, you know what they say about the best laid plans. One night in April over 70 years ago, the Rebellion put their full plan into effect by hacking the security codes to a portion of the secret Leviathan bank accounts and moved trillions of dollars into countless unnamed accounts in private banks across the world. They loaded matching sets of keyholes as well as valuable scientific data files into loading drones that met the Condor on the surface. The Rebellion took control of the Condor, the most advanced vehicle on the planet, and stole away with their priceless booty in untraceable style. Before the Rebellion left Leviathan, Evangeline's private chambers were flooded with gas that contained the retrovirus. But in the firefight that ensued as the rebels attempted to secede from Leviathan, Evangeline's chambers were damaged, thus leaking the retrovirus into the general population before Evangeline could ever be exposed to it. While the virus was custom-designed to alter Evangeline's genetic code, to anybody else the virus would be lethal. Thousands were killed. Over half of the immortal population died. It was our holocaust. And Leviathan became a death zone. Anton might not tell you this, but for most of the Leviathan population, being immortal makes you fear death more. After a few hundred years of being immortal, many forgot what death was, how painful it could be, how permanent the loss. It was never proven that the retrovirus was the cause of death. Oh, please, you. Will you help us? Yes or no, Harlequin? The answer is yes, Anton. 
I'll agree to help you break into this secret lab of yours, but only under three conditions. One, this mission is under my command. Everyone on the team reports to me, including you, Anton. Second, I want Mr. Tully here to be part of the mission. And thirdly, I want a moment alone with McAllen. Do you agree to my terms? What? How can Do you- Do you agree to my terms? Anton stared back at Harlequin, and then over to McAllen to make sure that she was alright with being alone with him. She nodded slightly. Fine. I agree to your terms, Harlequin. But you'd better be as good as you think you are. A pleasure, as always, doing business with you and the Rebellion. Now if you'd please excuse us. Harlequin gestured towards the door, and Anton and Tully both reluctantly exited the study. After a moment, Harlequin arose from behind his desk and walked over to McAllen. He looked into her eyes and smiled genuinely at her. He walked her over to the window overlooking Hyde Park. From their vantage point on the third floor, they could see hundreds of people in the park, running, walking, eating lunch, cutting through to Kensington, playing with dogs, hailing cabs and generally enjoying the beautiful expansiveness of the park. McAllen smiled ironically and wondered if her life would ever be that normal that pedestrian again. Her smile quickly faded when she saw a strangely familiar elderly couple staring at her from Hyde Park. People were moving all around the old couple, yet seemed to take no notice of them. The hairs on McAllen's arms stood up as she realized that they weren't staring at Harlequin's exquisite mansionette. Both the old man and the old woman were staring directly at McAllen. She was about to say something when Harlequin spoke first. You are a god among those around you. Look at them. They work and toil and never have time to reach even a fraction of their potential. It is cruel, no doubt. But that need not be your fate. Do not choose to live like one. Just because I'm no longer human doesn't mean I'm not part of humanity. You'll lose that naivety sooner or later. It usually takes a century or two. When everyone you've loved has died. When nothing in this world stays the same or is as you remember it. When every trace of your former life, your human life has been swept away by change. Then, only then, will you embrace what you are and begin your life anew, unfettered by the moral scriptures that you hold so dear now. Time will no longer be an enemy, but an ally. I could save you great pain, McAllen. What if I offered you a chance to join me? Doing what? Harlequin, what are you- McAllen, let me ask you this. What makes you think you'll survive contact with the Starstone? Because Evangeline lives- You're not Evangeline. And maybe it's a trap! What do you mean? Evangeline knows they'll send you to turn it off. Have you considered that it could be booby-trapped by her to kill her competition, mainly you? Sension would sacrifice you too easily, I think. Don't you see? This is who the immortals you revere so much really are. Oh, they'll have you believe that they saunter through Earth's history on a higher mission of scientific and cultural enlightenment. The intellectual elites hovering above humanity's depraved consciousness. But in reality, they are all just bloodthirsty soldiers fighting one side against the other in a war that is just as barbaric as the ones that they would choose to condemn by mankind. They are hypocrites, McAllen. And they will use you. I think you might be the hypocrite, Harlequin. At least they believe in something. Othello believed in something and made no excuses for his use of violence to protect the people he loves. You sit here in your mansion and try to profess that you're above it all. Above the immortals and their war. Yet you are precisely the one who profits from it, playing one side against the other. You're not above it. You are exactly in the middle of it. And that makes you the hypocrite. Your passion is refreshing. 
but antiquated. May I ask you another question? Of course. Why did you agree to have Tully join us? Quite simply, two reasons. One, it pisses Anton off. And two, a good chess master always wants another pawn to sacrifice, if necessary. listening to the Leviathan Chronicles. The Leviathan Chronicles was written and created by Christoph Lepupka, produced by Robin Shaw, produced and musical composition by Luke Allen, directed by Nobi Nakanishi. For a full list of cast and crew, or to purchase the ad-free director's cut, go to leviathanchronicles.com. Thank you for supporting us, and thank you for listening. To discover more podcasts set in the Leviathan universe, go to leviathanaudioproductions.com or follow us on Facebook or Twitter. Leviathan Audio Production. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. And sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot button issues. And it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.